0: And this is the K Cut. I'm Rachel. I love classic movies, silent films, lost films, and international. I also write for Films Fatale, even though my column is currently on hiatus. Who's with me?
1: James here, I'm a content creator, I produce and release music out of the Alias Boutique Paul, I'm one half of the Prefer Not To Say podcast, uh, I also sometimes write for Films Fatale, but I haven't written an article in forever,
2: but I hope to change that soon, and uh, yeah, my interests are no-budget film and 70s film. I'm Andreas, I'm the creator and one of the writers of Films Fatale, I apologize because I keep uh, stealing the space and writing too much. So that's, that's also my bad. Um, I love international and art house cinema. And speaking of writing too much, I am presently covering every single Palme d'Or winner. So uh, worthy of checking that out, but, uh, not just yet, uh, stick with us for a little while because, uh, this is another episode of the K-Cut, a brand new one, and we're discussing music and films. So, um, obviously with, uh, Uh, James and I, we have an affinity for um, just popular music or underground music in general. And Rachel, you are a musical and Broadway aficionado, so it's uh, no secret that we love music here over at Films Fatale. But I want to get into not iconic scores or soundtracks, either option. I want to get into the stuff that's underrated, the stuff that people don't discuss or listen to or appreciate enough.
0: I think that's a great idea because some of these movies are really ignored or if they are well known then this aspect which might be really well done needs to be brought to light because there may be something else you're paying attention to.
2: Absolutely. So we're not discussing like the obvious picks like Indiana Jones and that theme or like the Pulp What's Indiana dish. Jones um I it's it's in my anecdotes here, I don't actually I don't actually know what that is or what it sounds like. But
1: Actually side note, uh thinking of Indiana Jones and, you know, film music, apparently uh Indiana Jones is gonna be John Williams' last score.
2: Oh
0: well he's like eighty five years old or something. He's he's well into his eighties, if not his nineties, so fair enough.
2: I guess this is the appropriate time to bring it up. I mean, um well done, John Williams. Uh you had one of the biggest runs, and I guess that's a fitting send off, at least. So, I mean, that's bittersweet, though. That's bittersweet.
0: Better this than like Jaws seventeen or something.
2: Oh God, like what? Uh, what did Back to the Future two predict? It was like up to like Jaws twenty or something, wasn't it?
0: <laughs> I mean, you never know.
2: <laughs> well, luckily we've passed. Uh, we've passed the year within. Back to the Future too, and we didn't have that. But you never know. They might make up for lost time, especially if Vin Diesel gets behind it. But let's not go down that road. Let's, let's, stick, to, let's stick to this. So, yeah, no Indiana Joneses or Pulp Fictions. I want to get, like, surprised. I want to be like, oh, damn, I did not even think of that. So who wants to go first with, oh, before we continue, um, the second half of the episode, it's not really music-themed, or it could be. It's up to us. We're just going to do some fast film questions, really put each other in the hot seats. So we haven't done that in a while. Figured it could be fun. Let's, uh, let's pressurize ourselves because why not? But uh, let's get back to underrated film scores or soundtracks. Who wants to go first with their finding? I'll go first. Okay, what is your selection?
0: Well, this is interesting because it's entirely a soundtrack that came from other things. But it is the Cohen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis, which takes place in the very early folk scene of New York in the early, or late 50s, I think it is. And it stars Oscar Isaac as a musician who keeps playing old folk songs and nobody wants to hear them and he's struggling to make it. And it's also got like Carrie Mulligan and Justin Timberlake and a surprise performance by Adam Driver who almost walks off with the thing. And it's all, it's based very loosely on the life of Dave Van Bronk. And it's, so the soundtrack is all folk music from that era, or at least that was redone in that era. Most of it's much older than that. And it is so beautifully rendered. Um, like I listen to this soundtrack at least once a week and, um, Justin Timberlake is excellent in a style that he doesn't usually do. Oscar Isaac has a gorgeous voice and collaborates with Marcus Mumford for most of it. And even though they are authentic to the era, they very much put their own spin on these classic songs. And every single song in the movie, as far as I know, is either from a, a folk song from that time, or it's something really closely based on it. Like, please, Mr. Kennedy didn't exist, but it was based on something else. So... Not only are they paying homage to this time, but they really are making it their own. It's interesting, though, because people who have seen the movie really do praise the music. It's one of the strongest parts, so it's not underrated in that sense. But the movie itself is almost completely ignored. It's one of my favorite Coen Brothers films, and nobody shouts it out enough. And Oscar Isaac should have been Oscar nominated, and I will die on that hill.
2: Especially, like... uh like as his first nomination he should have been nominated additional times since but that should have been his first one it's obviously he's been in other stuff but that was for sure his big breakthrough that to me was like you know I previously I saw him as like that that jerkwad and Drive, you know, he's like this, uh, he's not a likable person in Drive, but then when you see him here, it's like, okay, I immediately love this guy. And, you know, you bring up the folk soundtrack, if I'm not mistaken, the huge inspiration was Woody Guthrie, who I believe was, like, one of Bob Dylan's idols, so, like, before Dylan took off, this is the guy that inspired him, and he was barely known of.
0: But it was more, it was more a bit later, it was more like the Dave Van Ronk era. That's um, true, that's true. yeah. So by this point, there was already a different spin on the kind of stuff Woody Guthrie did.
2: That's true. Maybe they modernized it a little bit so it's like more fitting, like somebody who could make it, but is lost within society as opposed to somebody who's kind of breaking ground and is not being listened to.
0: Yeah. Anyway, if you are listening to this podcast, if you are one of our seven listeners, please go on YouTube and look up Marcus Mumford and Oscar Isaac's cover of Fare Thee Well, Dink's song. It is so beautiful. I can barely describe it. I've listened to it so many times.
2: Yeah, one last final note for me. Um, It makes me sad because, like, the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack is also fantastic, but, like, that one was so popular, so acclaimed. The damn thing won Album of the Year at the Grammys. Why has this album not received nearly as much devotion and love? It kind of puzzles me a little bit.
0: Yeah, I don't know. That whole movie was just completely ignored, and it doesn't deserve that. It deserves better.
1: I think it was probably because, what what year did that come out?
0: 2013. Uh, t-
2: 2013, yeah. Oh, dude, 2013 was so stacked, though. But That's, that's true. It, it was stacked, but if you really think about it, that's at least in the top 10 of the year. Really think oh, yeah, about it. Oh, yeah, it was. I just think there were just so many
1: things that overshadowed it.
0: That's right. It's a quiet movie.
2: Yeah. yeah. But it's unfortunate, but it, it's highly relatable. I mean, the whole thing of um, existential and, uh, and societal exhaustion and mental health awareness within like, you know, the everyday person, somebody who's trying to break out and be an artist, but they really are still an everyday person, highly identifiable. Plus it's got a cat. We love that cat. It's an amazing cat.
0: Also fun fact. Um, at least one reviewer mistook Justin Timberlake's voice for Carrie Mulligan's because he was singing in such a high register. So good for Justin Timberlake. That that takes some range.
2: You say good for Justin Timberlake on that note. Yes, a fantastic note. But uh, now that we've, we're talking about this, I think I've suddenly realized – this was probably his foray into his worst album, Man of the Woods, where he tried to like hy- make a hybrid of like popular contemporary music with like dubstep and like trap influence. And then he was doing like the old folk thing and it was like a, a huge mess and one of the worst albums I've ever listened to. So did it come from this? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> maybe uh, unlike what rachel said where uh, you were recommending to listen to stuff don't listen to man of the woods it's not a good album go go, no, back. go
0: watch lewin davis instead
2: you, or go watch lewin davis instead absolutely but if you want to listen to some jt future sex love sound still exists go with that honestly any other thoughts for lewin davis
0: just that i highly recommend it and it's not um it's not a particularly exciting movie but i find it very satisfying as a movie
2: I mean, I'm speaking overly general and off the top of my head, but I I feel like without really scrutinizing, because I haven't done my, my homework right now and I haven't really ranked it out, it could easily be a top 10 Coen Brothers film. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So, uh, James, what about you? What is the soundtrack and or score that you went with?
1: So I was thinking of uh, scores that I feel are underrated and I was kind of... Yeah, I couldn't think of anything at first, and then it hit me. I decided to go with the score for Fight Club.
2: Fight? You think yeah. that one's underrated?
1: Yes, this one is never in the conversation when it comes to top scores, ever.
0: Well, I know and it has I a great th- soundtrack, but I'll admit I kind of don't really remember the score. That's a good point.
1: Well, so here's here's the thing that most people don't realize, is the only thing that's actually kind of like soundtracky is the Pixie song at the end. Right. The rest of it is the score. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> and I think it's because it's not really a typical score. So when David Fincher was making the movie, he didn't want to bring in anybody who had experience doing film scores. So what he originally did, he actually reached out to Radiohead to do the score. But Tom York was burned out from doing OK Computer. And
2: Romeo and Juliet, I guess.
1: <laughs> so there was just, yeah, he, he was, because I remember it was like, I you know, He actually wanted to call it Quits After OK Computer because of how exhausting that record was. So then he decides to go with uh, the Dust Brothers, who were notable hip hop producers. And for those who don't know who the Dust Brothers are, when they first got their start, they uh, actually produced some pretty successful songs by a young MC and Tone Loke. And then they hit like real critical success by producing the BC Boys second album, Paul's Paul's Boutique. Boutique,
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: then they got even more success in the 90s when they produced uh, Odalay for Beck. Yes. And then they've also worked with a litany of other people. Like, they've worked with Linkin Park um, and a, just a ton. I think they even produced a Rolling Stones album, I think, in the late 90s. But this this score is great because it kind of ties, like, you know, just the fact it's like, you know, drum loops and samples and electronic sounds. It. It kind of ties together the movie in a way because, like, I think a traditional score wouldn't work because of this kind of like anti-establishment, anti-commercialism. Also, just just parroting, you know, the plight of the fragile male ego. A regular film score wouldn't be able to capture that. Also, it's a really unique score because this it wasn't made. It was made without the picture. Period. They didn't see any of the footage before making the score. So they made it, and then they put it in where like pieces worked so that that was the thing that blew my mind because i was like the score fits so well in every scene it's in but they didn't make it to these scenes they made it just in their studio alone so i was just like oh wow that's kind of interesting yeah it's almost like oh this fits perfectly even though it's like they saw nothing beforehand but yeah i think it just it also makes a case for getting people who aren't Traditional film composers, and I think that's why we see a lot of people, you know, find success doing that, like a like a Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I think this kind of right. foreshadowed that. Mm-hmm. And then um, I forgot who who his partners, but a uh, Jeff Barrow from Portishead, he he does film scores. He actually did um, Oh Men and um, Annihilation. Yeah, well, he also did uh, Ex Machina. So he, he's actually, they're actually the exclusive collaborator with Alex Garland, right? And they've true. also done some like TV shows.
0: Well, it's so funny that you brought up Reznor and Ross because like Fincher is one of my favorite directors for scores and Reznor and Ross have done some great soundtracks and I was this close to doing Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, except I'm banned from speaking about it ever again on this podcast, but well, only um,
2: only because you banned yourself. I mean, you're allowed to. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah, like Fincher is just excellent at picking the top people in every aspect of his films and scores no exception.
2: I'm oh, wondering yeah. if the whole thing about not seeing the movie until after you've recorded the songs is a recurring theme, because if I'm not mistaken, to go back to Dragon Tattoo, that soundtrack score is like well over three hours, which is longer than the film itself. I remember putting it on when I was younger, back when I had an iPod, remember those days, and um, just being lost for like hours, just like reading to it, and it was just so hypnotic, but yeah, the same thing with Mank. the Mank the bank score is really long in comparison to the film, or like in in comparison to like what's used in the film. I feel like that must be a recurring theme with um with Fincher and who he works with.
0: It's its own work. It, it stands separately from the film.
2: For sure, for sure. Um I mean these are all really good points, and I feel like it's something that as uh as as one of the, the few naysayers of Fight Club, I like it, I think it's overrated. Um I guess I miss a lot is probably some of the stuff like this where maybe a rewatch would definitely allow me to appreciate some of this stuff a little more. I would say
1: that makes sense. I think uh, you do kind of have to. Th- there's certain types of there- there's like different types of Fight Club fans. That's true. Like there's there's a certain individual that identifies a little too hard with certain concepts who just kind of miss the joke of it all because yeah, there's a lot kind of stuff of in the
2: head. Yeah. yeah
1: and it's those fans that kind of ruin it
2: it's it's like the people who the film is critiquing are like oh yeah i identify with the rebellion and it's like no nah, you're, you're the people they're mocking though like that's kind of what yeah. it is or, or it's
1: like the people who saw themselves in joker and it's like that's not yeah. good like
0: you're or who missing the point or something to emulate
2: or like bojack yeah. horseman yeah like all these anti-heroes are like man I I am Travis Bickle, and it's like, well, then please stay 50 yards away from me, please. I'm actually scared for my safety now. <laughs> yeah, these are meant to be um, the complete pushing of one's threshold, not empathetic portrayals whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I guess uh, one more final point from me personally about Fight Club, and it, it's just something about uh, the Dust Brothers in general. I think it's so applicable because they to me, and I don't know if you feel the same way, James, there's this bridge between electronic music and other more tangible things. I don't know what it is, maybe the production itself feels almost like 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 an analogue kind of tangible thing of sorts where it's textured and it feels gritty, almost like a like a record being played. But yeah, with Odley, with um with The Beast Boys themselves, so maybe that's why, when it comes to electronically produced music, they were one of the first forays into genre bending or other mixed medium related projects.
1: Well, yeah, the only other real score that was playing around with the same thing they did was uh, was Pie by Darren Aronofsky, and most of that is a soundtrack composed of other like electronic artists, but like you know, this or or in like the I think the theme. The primary theme was Clint Manziel. but yeah. yeah, just this idea of like, you know, just like, you know, beat driven music isn't something you really think about when it comes to film. So when it is, it's it's almost a highlight because it's so atypical.
2: Yeah, because before that it was like purely electronic and synthesizer stuff like what Vangie Lee was doing with Blade Runner and Chariots of Fire, or you're looking at like hip hop stuff that was happening in um, you know, films by like Spike Lee, for instance. So this is like a little bit different. This is like you're not being transported to a fictitious world. You're not, uh, you, you know, you're not feeling this evocation of, um, you know, certain styles of music per se. This is still a score meant to enhance a film, but it's done a little differently. Any other thoughts on uh, on Fight Club before we move on? It's almost at the twenty five year mark already. Jeez, wow.
0: Yeah so we've just broken the rule. Twice,
2: apparently, if, if that's what you're referring to. Um, oh, ha. Uh, Yeah, so moving on before we are, um, uh, you know, on the, in, in the bad books of uh, very, very hardcore Fight Club plans. Uh, oh, there I go again. Um, I'm going to move on to a score by my all-time favorite composer, which I think is no secret at this point. Um, one Inio Marcone. And I would easily rank this amongst his best work. And it, it actually saddens me that it isn't. This is actually something that he, um, he, he made alongside the film's director, um, Gillo Patacorvo, and that's the score for the Battle of Algiers. So, you know, we were talking about David Fincher uh, to go to like a similar contemporary director, if you look at Tarantino, and if you've seen uh, Inglourious Bastards, the marching theme that you can hear you know, in various parts of the film, that's actually from the Battle of Algiers. So chances are you actually have heard a bit of the film without actually have seen it. So what I love about this film is it's got that that marching theme as well, as I've already discussed, but that's also similar to what you hear with the Getty Bad and the Ugly, like the, the iconic whistling theme with... With the, you know, the guitar playing. That's the most well-known part, but it's not necessarily the strongest part. And it's when you listen to more, you get even more brilliance. And I do mean brilliance. So I'll give you some context for the film. Have either of you seen A Battle of Algiers? Yes. I have not. Okay, so Rachel, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So *The Battle of Algiers, first off, is one of my top five favorite films of all time. So I adore this film. I absolutely adore it. Um... It is a Golden Lion winner at the Venice Film Festival, and it is it was one of the most controversial films upon release, and it was banned in a number of countries. It was actually used by the Pentagon and heavily scrutinized when it came to the dealings of war and colonialization, and you know how military approaches should should happen. Um, the film is kind of a balanced look at what the French government and its army look like in relation to the Algerian people and how in both situations you have the innocent people that get affected, but also those who are trying to steer a ship and are doing it through harm and violence. So, uh, there's a lot to go into here. Um, it's a brilliant offshoot of Italian neorealism. Um, you know, it's like one of the offspring of, like, the films of Rossellini and, um, and Vittorio Sica, for instance. But to, to go back to the score itself, uh, at times it's extremely nerve-wracking, extremely, you know, anxiety-inducing. Like that marching score you hear in A Glorious Bastards, there's other parts like it where it's like a pummeling, rhythmic type of type of sound that enhances some, again, frightening imagery, like the preparations for warfare, the preparations for attacks. Um, But then it's beautiful as
0: well. And as we mentioned in one of our other uh, episodes, the Battle of Algiers is so finely constructed in its portrayal of this battle that it's actually taught in real life for uh, counterintelligence people and stuff like that. So... It really strikes this band of authenticity, and I think the score is a big part of that.
2: Yeah, and because the filmmaker himself, Porto Covo, is a is a part of the score experience, and it wasn't just Marconi by himself. There's yeah, there's this um, this unbreakable union between the the music and the film itself, and there's also like a lot of beautiful moments in the score as well, um, particularly more tender vulnerable moments where like maybe they're highlighting a specific character with a voiceover narration or you're looking at a lot of like the wreckage of what has happened after the warfare has taken place and you're seeing a lot of the people who are innocent who have been hurt it's some of the most beautiful orchestrations in Marconi's entire career and it I'm absolutely flabbergasted that it's not referenced enough especially because the Battle of Algiers itself is a film that's on quite a few radars, and I don't know about you, Rachel, but did you have to study this in school as well? Is that why you've seen it?
0: Uh, yes, I've seen it a few times, but that was the first time.
2: Exactly. So it is a part of like a lot of film one-on-one classes, particularly when you're you're discussing either Italian cinema and its evolution or historical historically based cinema itself. So
0: exactly. Um, yeah, I just think it's the kind of movie that. You could go on about for years. It's it's so dense, so wonderfully made. It covers so many real topics that if if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, that's another one you should go see because you can't. I don't want to gatekeep, but it really is an essential part of being a film fan.
2: <laughs> I I couldn't agree more. Like when people rank a number of films, like Casablanca or. If we're going to go into like international film territory, let's say like Tokyo Story or The Seventh Seal, I feel like the Battle of Algiers is like a must in that discussion. It is. It absolutely is. Absolutely. Um, a quick shout out to Theme of Ali, which is like possibly my favorite part of the entire um, the entire score. It's one that I've had on repeat, again and again and again, um, while I was studying as an undergrad student while I went through some hard times and I needed to get those tears out, it's one of the most beautiful things Marconi's ever done. So, Outside of that, are we all um, exhausted talking about music? Are we ready to be put on the spot?
0: Absolutely.
2: Okie dokie. So, uh, should we go in the same order? Sure. Okay, Rachel. Uh, what is your film question that you want us all to answer, you can answer it as well if you if
0: you so desire. What is a genre you really don't like or can't connect
2: to? Ooh, that's tough.
1: I I I already know mine.
0: <laughs> okay, go for it.
1: Uh so specifically medieval fantasy.
0: Okay. Oh like high fantasy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is about it, but I just can't do, like, Lord of the Rings, can't do it. I don't know what it is about it. There's just certain things about it. And actually, I I would say, like, I I guess I could go kind of in just, like, more diverse of fantasy as well. Because it's like, I can't get into Harry Potter either. I don't know what it is. I think it's just, for some reason, it just rubs me the wrong way when I consume it.
0: Well, you're just a muggle then, I guess.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess I am. I don't, but it's weird because it's like uh, I think the only the only way I could like enjoy it, and this is gonna sound really weird, but if it's anime, I can get down with it, no problem. And I don't know why. That's fair. But yeah, just stuff like that. I think it's like, <clears throat> and it's more partic- and it's more specific to fantasy because like I can watch like medieval stuff, but once you cross over to the fantasy element, I'm just like, nah, this is really not for me. Once there's a dragon,
2: you're done.
1: Yeah, and it's not always. It's just like, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just not my favorite. It's like I I can tolerate it. I'll say that. I don't know. I do like to kind of like make jokes and bash on people who like Lord of the Rings just because they like. (laughs) It's just fun, but no, and I don't mean anything by it. But yeah, it's just never really been my thing. But then again, I like smaller movies. So like massive IPs, I just can't do. Especially like things with expansive world building. I just. It's too much of a chore for me.
0: Oh, see, and I absolutely love the things with massive world building. So there you go. Uh (laughs)
2: Uh-oh. I don't really have an answer, but I do have an answer. I love every genre, every era, every movement. But I will say, and this is for sure, unquestionably my answer. The one that I like the least, and I identify with the least... And I've known this since I was a young teenager, or maybe even a teenager. Action films, in all sincerity, I like a handful, I adore very few. I, otherwise, I'm not a part of that ilk. I just am not for some reason.
0: That's fair. Why don't they appeal to you?
2: Well, I'll get back to when I realized this. I remember everybody was obsessing over Triple X, and I can't believe we're bringing up Vin Diesel twice in one episode, but there we go. Um, <laughs> God help us. Uh, when Triple X first came out, I was quite young. I must have been like 12, maybe 13. I can't remember. And... We rented it back when Rogers Video Shadow Canada um, was still a thing. Uh, oh, any, yeah. <laughs> for any listeners, Rogers Video is basically like an alternative to Blockbuster, and we rented it. And it was actually rented for me. My dad's like, "I'm not interested in this, but sure, if you want to watch this because everybody else is, we could rent it." And I wanted to watch it on my own accord, and I tried watching it once, and I dug the Ramstein music at the beginning. I didn't really get sucked into it I kind of turn it off and then my dad's like wait we rented this though and he didn't finish watching it okay well we're going to watch it during movie because we used to watch movies every night so it's like okay well family movie night we might as well watch it now to you know make our money's worth because we rented it and he didn't watch it so we watched it together as a family and I think all of us were just like tuning out but myself especially I was like I just don't value this in any way because I find the story so Uh, Is it the story? Is it something like, is there something wrong with this? And then once I tried to check more action films afterwards, I was like, oh my God, I don't care for this genre that much anymore. (laughs) And It rings true to this day, unless you're like a Mad Max, Road Warrior or Fury Road, even Dire to an extent, like there are a few action films that I adore. But when it comes to straight up action films, they are not my thing. And I've just accepted that.
1: You know, I think I know what it might be. I think it's because the general action film is very vapid. It's like when you talk about a Mad Max, it's like, that's a great action film. Yes. <laughs> but there's more to it. Or like, you know, I'm a big fan of Robert Rodriguez, who does a lot of action films. But I think his filmmaking makes up for the fact it, that it's a generic action film. That's true. But but when you get into like the Triple X's or like the Expendables movies or just like any of the just general action films that is just or like a Michael Bay film, it's just it's just so hollow. And it's, it's, it's supposed to be like, it's like eating candy. It's it's not supposed to be like, it's not supposed to be viewed as like art per se. It's like, you know, eating a cheeseburger from McDonald's. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to hit your endorphins in a certain way. It's not supposed to like last with you forever and
2: make an impression like certain films do.
0: It's something you can take a diverse group of friends to the movies with.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, I guess uh, to really boil it down i feel like action has to be earned so like um i eventually did see the batman last last month and i feel like it builds up to so much that when that finally strikes it's like yeah i feel it i feel like this is earned i feel like we got to a place where this is all justifiable i think that's my major issue i just find needless violence just uninteresting but yeah it's got to be done by the right person and done in the right way
0: okay well Gentlemen, the sound you hear right now is my dad cutting me out of his will, but oh, I no. do not like Westerns.
2: Oh, no. Okay, <laughs> what's wrong with Westerns? I mean, I can get why, but what's your personal reason?
0: Well, okay, first of all, the genre is extremely problematic, but like, let's put that aside. We're probably going to be discussing it next week, to be honest. But um, it's more that I just find it dull. It's a bunch of dudes riding horses and... <laughs> It's so boring, and it's a time I do, It's a time period I don't care about, and I just, I just really, really dislike it. And the only westerns I do like two or three of them, but they're actively deconstructing the genre. They've got a different twist, something like that. Uh, but like the ones I like are like the Shootist or the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and those are different. Not not the straight up ones that are sincerely believing in the genre. No, I can't do them.
2: Okay. Uh, well, I. I, myself, I adore Westerns, but before I continue, there's a difference between Westerns of old and, like, the... When I say newer Westerns, I don't necessarily mean, like, the revisionist stuff that we have now, but, like, even as far as, like, the 60s, mm-hmm. the, the, the stuff that's older, a lot of that is so, so problematic, it's not even funny. So, I totally yeah. get what you're saying. When I love Westerns, I mean, like, What's About a Time in the West, The Great Silence... Like this, like, oh no,
0: I'm talking like Hollywood Studio yeah. where John Wayne like chases something for the 500th time. No, <laughs> I can't do it. It's just the same movie over and over and over.
2: This one's called Stagecoach because he does it with a stagecoach. <laughs> uh, mm. No, I, I don't mean to crap on a classic. I'm just joking. It's a good film. But uh, I, I do get what you mean. Like Whenever I discuss westerns, I have to preface it by saying, first off, before I continue eastwood over wayne just saying <laughs> and, and then i keep going so well they're I completely
0: get. different too but um yeah. anyway i'll be interested to see what you have to say next week when we talk about the shoot is because i feel like we'll revisit this discussion but
2: yeah absolutely i can't wait to get further into that discussion we'll we'll save for it uh as for our next question though james what do you got for us
1: <laughs>
2: uh, so
1: i was so i have a great question so who is an actor who had kind of a hot streak for a little while as a lead, but you think they would have been better utilized as a supporting actor throughout their career? Ooh, that's tough. That's tough. I'll
0: think about it.
1: I can go first if you want. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Pauly Shore. Okay. Should he Pauly be in Shor-
0: anything?
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Pauly Shore. I think Pauly Shore is entertaining. Okay. But the, the mistake was giving him lead roles. This is a person like, He's somebody that could have been a great supporting cast. It's almost like David Spade, like David Spade post Chris Farley, isn't that great? But he works very well. Or like like Rob Schneider when he had his little streak of like starring in films. It just doesn't work for certain people. Like some people don't need to be like you know top billed actor. Some people are just better for like certain like like Paulie Sherwood would work great in comedies if he was just like a side character. But when you give him a lead role, it's just like what is going on.
0: He can't it's, quite carry
1: it. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it, I, it worked for the time, but I'm just thinking, I'm just like, you know, you, you'd you be so great if you were kind of like in someone else's like corral of actors. Like if he was, you know, it's like anybody who works with Adam Sandler, I think as bad as those movies are, it's like, all those guys work great together and they have fun doing it. So it's like, there's appeal to that. But once certain individuals are the lead, it's like, mm, it doesn't quite hit the same.
2: Well... If you're gonna get uh, you know crucified for this, I'm 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 gonna go there with you. Um, my answer is outside of anything she did with Quentin Tarantino, so excluding Kill Bill and Pulp Fiction, I'm gonna go with Uma Thurman. I feel okay. like I find her really interesting when I see her in bit parts, like in Nymphomaniac. I feel like she was a real scene stealer. But when it comes to her leading stuff, yeah, I only really care for her in Tarantino stuff. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I I
1: get that. Well, uh, I think Cuba works because they came up with that story together. That's true.
0: Well, you guys aren't going to like my answer.
2: Okay.
0: Tom Cruise. Hmm. Well, Yes, he can carry a film. Yes, he is a very magnetic star. He's handsome and all that. But he's also an extremely talented actor, and he can really, really perform well. But I don't think he's ever been given the chance, really. I I would argue that his greatest performance ever was Magnolia in 1999. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I just think if they kind of took the star away from Tom Cruise for a bit, he would really, really shine as an actor, and I think he has the potential to do that. Um, So, and even in, say, Rain Man, where he was a lead but he was not the lead, that was one of his best performances, too. So I just think kind of... Taking the spotlight away from him would help him stand out a little more, as strange as that sounds.
2: Not that I agree. I agree to an extent. But like to your point, outside of his action stuff, what has been his most memorable thing of the last 20 years? His cameo on Tropic Thunder. You might have exactly. a point. You might have a point.
0: I think he's at a place where he could have fun with that.
2: Yeah. You know, I think it could have to do with something
1: about being a star in the 80s. Mm Because I feel like that could apply to a lot of people who were big in the 80s, especially one because it's like you had so many like anybody who was in a like a big ensemble cast in the 80s, especially being young. I think there is a certain thing where it was like being becoming a movie star in that era. You really do have to work hard to kind of carry over into other generations. And I think he pulls it off because I think it's like he just has that star power to where it works. But, you know, he's not without his misses because like the mummy was awful.
0: yeah. Well, I mean, every star who's done as many movies as he has has done a few clunkers.
2: I will say, even though I've just kind of decimated action films not too long ago, he is brilliant as an action lead. But like you, even though I feel like he's perfect at what he does and he's one of the best to do what he does... I yearn for his dramatic acting days. I really do. Like, Magnolia is one of my favorite performances of all time, like his performance in that. And I would love to see him at least attempt to do something like that again. Like, he used to. I don't to.
0: think he's been nominated since, has he?
2: Uh, the Last Samurai, I think. But, like, that was still, like, right after. He hasn't been nominated since then, I don't think. Was he even nominated for The Last Samurai? Am I no, wrong? No, Ken
0: Watanabe was, but he was oh, not. Oh,
2: I, th- I think he might have been nominated for a Golden Globe. I think that's what it was.
0: Okay, well, Golden Globes don't count.
2: No, they don't. So uh, the answer is no. <laughs> um, well, that's too bad. Yeah, Tom Cruise, uh, keep doing your thing, but keep doing some other stuff, too. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, I suppose it's my turn. I might need un momento, por favor. Um, hmm. Okay, well, completely accidental, because I just said something in Spanish, uh, just to kind of segue... Um, but it kind of turned into something so you can answer one of two questions. Who is an international filmmaker? You would love to have an English language or Hollywood debut, or who is somebody who, um, has international connections. So maybe like, uh, like a Robert Rodriguez or something who you would love to see do an authentically national film. My God, I'll have
0: to think about that one.
2: So, and they could be living or dead. So I'll give you an example. I was thinking about this the other day, and I know that he's a Japanese filmmaker that actually did a Soviet Japanese co-production. Um, I would love to have known, and he did like a little bit of English with his film Dreams, I would love to have seen a fully-fledged, hollywood or american production by kira kurosawa and, and would have loved to have seen what he would have done with american actors i feel like especially like right in the 90s when he was like calling a quits pretty much and he was like you know towards the end of his career and he was going to shortly pass after to wrap things up because if either of you have not seen dreams he has a part where scorsese actually plays vincent van gogh which is like The best casting I've ever heard of in my entire life. Marty Scorsese acting as Vincent Van Gogh in a Kurosawa film. That's just amazing. And it's like my favorite part of the film. And that kind of got me thinking where it's like, first off, Marty's an underrated actor and I wish he did more. But he's too busy directing amazing movies, so I guess there's that. Um, What would Kurosawa have done, you know, in that time frame? So let's say... What would he have done with a young Brad Pitt and like a Julia Roberts or like a young Clooney, um, Francis McDormand, Holly Hunter? What could he have done with something like that? And what would he have told in the heart of America, particularly because his stories are so transferable? Like so many of his samurai films were inspired by, you know, Western, like the Western genre, but then they also were adapted into the Western genre. So like Seven Samurai became Magnificent Seven. You know, Jimbo became um, Fistful of Dollars, which is an Italian film, but obviously for like Western lovers, so American audiences. Um, it's so transferable. So what would he have done and what story would, would he have told? So like maybe something to do with like The Cold War in America? Because, you know, he was a very political filmmaker and he told a lot of stories about war and corruption. Maybe the Cold War in America and, you know, like the KGB or like... What could he have told? I feel like it would have been something very interesting.
0: Hmm. Okay, I'm still thinking about mine.
2: I think I have mine.
1: Sure. So... uh, I'm actually going with a Japanese filmmaker also who uh, I think would... Make something really interesting in the states Takashi uh, go with, what Miike. i don 't know who that is oh <laughs> uh no i'm going to go with Shinya Sukamoto
2: oh okay,
1: because I think his filmmaking style would work well here, like with like an American setting. I think would just like you know like we saw with um like Tokyo Fist or like Andreas, I know you've seen a uh, Tetsu of the Iron Man um. I've actually seen that. I've also seen the third Tetsuo movie that he did, which is in English, but still takes place in Japan. But just that kind of like rapid fire style. I think that's the kind of thing that would really hit off well with not only American audiences, but I think his like, it would appeal to both ends. Cause it's like, you know, you have the people who kind of like to have like that fast-paced cinema, but it also appeals to like the art house crowd, but just to see what he would do. Like, like you said, like with American actors, what could he do? I mean, not especially not being from America.
2: Especially during the Robert Rodriguez, Michael Bay era of action storytelling, like what craziness! And I'm also thinking of like the Fifth Element, Run, Little Run. What craziness could he have added to that style of action storytelling? Oh yeah, yeah, it would just be really. I, don't know, I just think the Matrix. I I keep thinking of, of additional examples. Lay on the professional. I keep thinking of more examples that prove your point. It, something really interesting.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I just think it'd be. I always think it's interesting when uh, when foreign filmmakers come to America because it's like the once they start working with here or it's like you know I still have yet to see um, his early works uh, uh, pre the Lobster but Yorgos Lanthimos is a good example of Ooh, yeah. like what you can do with when you come to the when you come over to our side and use like American actors well not I guess not all American because he worked with like sorts like Colin Farrell and all that but. Just like when you step outside of your you know typical realm. Or like when um uh, Denis Villeneuve, you know, he came over to our side and like, look what he's done. Well, technically, he in was already here. Like the Hollywood he's, system. He's,
2: he's Quebecian. He's, he, uh, yeah, they all keep a quiet, yes. Uh, so. Oh, yeah. So I like, guess
1: he, he's technically North American. But I think once he kind of hopped over to Hollywood, you know, what he's been able to do. And it's like, I mean, look what he's doing right now.
2: Fair enough. Rachel, what about you?
0: I would have liked to see what Marcel Pagnol would have thought of North America in the 30s, basically.
2: Uh, that's actually a really good one as
0: well. Because, yeah, as far as I can tell, his career was pretty much all in France. And he used such innovative techniques that were really among the populace. It was a very different kind of filmmaking. And I wonder what it, it would have been like if he'd interacted with, say, the Thornton Wilders and Sinclair Lewises of his day. What kind of stuff would they have come up with? Uh, could it have been something unusual um, could he have changed Hollywood? Who knows?
2: Potentially, especially because I feel like, uh, as you said, uh, he would have told stories that were quite relatable, especially like during the Great Depression or whatnot.
0: I think part of it is today I was reading a novel about the Dust Bowl. And so I was looking at stuff about Pagnon, thinking, well, how would he have handled the Dust Bowl?
2: Or so many other things as well. Even like, like a prohibition, maybe.
0: When I think of Hollywood and how they took on social issues at the time, I wonder, would he have been basically more frank about it? Uh, Or would he have been too idealized? Hard to say.
2: That's interesting because if, you know, around the time when Hollywood was like sugarcoating and kind of deceiving its audience with its uh, golden endings, again, to kind of bring things full circle with Italian neorealism, this was like a, a complete middle finger to government, a basically a way of saying, "This is what things really look like." You know, it's not all glitz and glamour. Things are actually really tough down here. So, what, which way would Pinneal have uh, have pivoted towards? Yeah, the idealized or towards the real? I don't know. He like
0: had a little bit of both. Like when I'm thinking of like the Baker's Wife, right?
2: And his um, Marseille trilogy, right? I think that's what it's called. Yes. Yes.
0: Marius Fanny, all that one.
2: Right. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. Um, That was another episode of the K-Cut. But before we get going, if you like what you hear, we've got some more K-Cut goodness.
0: That's right. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut. We like to post random tidbits and things like that. And for this month's Smorgasbord, we're doing Following by Christopher Nolan, as well as Tokyo Story and The Shootist. And our collective film is Atlantic Rhapsody.
2: We should make uh, some
0: random recommendations, shouldn't we?
2: As if we haven't made enough. But you know what? It never hurts to make more. So uh, maybe in the same order, Uh, let's make some random recos.
0: Okay, I am going to recommend Vera Chytilova's Daisies. Um, It's a wonderful, absurd film taking place in the late 60s in the Czech Republic. It's very decadent, um, and it caused quite a lot of controversy when it came out, but it is very memorable, and it's part of the canon like every film fan should see it
2: that is one of the best underground films of all time I cannot agree more James what about you
1: so I was just thinking about David Fincher and Trent Reznor and Akis Ross I'm gonna go with Gone Girl because of how good that score is I mean it's it's one of my favorite films of the past like I don't know 15 years but I think that score especially when you go from like the really tense music to like the really dreamy music in the um in those uh, journal entry scenes, just chef's kiss.
2: Also a really good film. I'm going to say it's kind of like Zodiac where it was good upon release, but it might actually be aging even better than we might've anticipated. So that's one I've been dying to revisit. It's a excellent film for sure. Um, I might've recommended this one before, but I can't shake it off. So I'm just going to recommend it again. If I haven't, if I, yeah, if I haven't recommended it already, Uh, let's talk about Larissa Shepitko's The Ascent, which I think is one of the most harrowing film experiences I think I've ever seen. Um, it's one of the very rare films to be a part of the Criterion Eclipse series to actually graduate outside of a box set and get its own release. And it absolutely deserves it. If you want to see one of the most pummeling 70s film experiences about wartime and seeing, um... Two soldiers who are basically on the run and, and, and in hiding. The ascent is a Titanic experience and I can't I can't stress enough that it that you like it's a must see. So that's it for the K Cut. Now we are going into the Elk. Cut.